Our next scripture this morning is a reading from Psalm 146. And it definitely ties in with the song, You Meet Me Here. Because in Psalm 146, the psalmist is very exuberant in his praise of a God who feeds the hungry, sustains the widow and the orphan, cares for the oppressed, sets the prisoner free, and watches over those who are strangers in the land. So the psalm says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to God as long as I live. Don't put your trusted princes in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plants come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. He gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for how long? For all generations. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Our next scripture reading is from Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 10. Near the end of his life, Moses is addressing the people of Israel, reminding them of the covenant that they have with God. He tells them to love foreigners, for God's people were foreigners themselves once in Egypt. And the scripture reads as follows. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among them, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Our primary scripture reading is from the Gospel of St. Mark, St. Matthew, sorry, chapter 2. 
This passage recounts what happened to Jesus and his family immediately after the visit by the Magi. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thank you, friends, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks, and uh, it's my privilege this morning uh, to open up uh, God's Word, or rather to lead us as we open up God's Word together and as God opens us up to His Word. Um, before I begin, though, I do have a couple of community announcements. Um, the first one is, is, is uh, quite encouraging. Um, uh, with reference to what's happening in our children's ministry. Um, as um, many of you will know, um, our former children's pastor um, finished her time with us uh, at the end of August, and since September, we've been searching um, for a new children's pastor. We haven't found one yet, um, although the search team are continuing to do some diligent work, and actually, I don't think they know it yet, but we've just received, just in the last couple of days, some uh, very promising applications that we'll be pursuing. In the meantime, though, uh, Brenda Roleman, who uh, serves in a part-time uh, position on our staff, has very generously been willing to take on some extra work and has been helping us to carry the uh, children's ministry. Um, but we are going to, um, starting tomorrow, get her some help. Um, we've created a small contract position, and uh, Lauren Greenwood from our church family is going to be working about 10 hours a week uh, alongside Brenda to help carry the load in the in the children's ministry. So um, Lauren will be joining us on the staff, um, as I say, more as a kind of a contract position, uh, just a few hours a week for a little while. The other uh, announcement that I have to make has to do with, um, with people uh, passing. Um, my experience through life has been that, that the month of December um, just seems to be un unnaturally prone um, uh, to passings, and here at Seven Oaks this past season, uh, we've been no exception. Several members of our, our congregation have gone to be with the Lord. Um, uh, yesterday, here in the chapel, we had the memorial service for Sharon Hoskin. There were over 200 uh, people here. It was a, it was a, a wonderful uh, time to gather as a community, but a time of deep grief um, for us as well. Uh, last week, uh, Jamie uh, told you about the passing the sudden and rather unexpected passing of Ann Thiessen. Uh, we now have details. Her memorial service will be held over at uh, Woodlawn uh, on Clearbrook. That will be tomorrow, Monday, the 10th of January at 3.30 in the afternoon. That's the memorial for Ann Thiessen. Um, and finally, um, we have two more um, recent deaths um, that I'm, I'm, I'm grieved to have to share with you. Uh, Muriel Entz uh, passed away on December 31st, uh, and then Linda Trammell uh, passed away on, I think, January 2nd. We don't have service details um, in either of those cases yet, but obviously I'd like to invite you to um, uh, join us all 
um, in, uh, in praying for their families. In fact, why don't we uh, do that now? Please bow your heads um, and join me uh, in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the lives of these, our sisters, who have uh, passed now um, to the next stage in their life with you. We commend them to your care. We pray particularly for their families, for their friends, for those who, who were closest to them, who knew them and loved them and who nonetheless grieve. Um, we know, Lord, that death is a wrong thing that um, came into the world um, through our, uh, our tendency to be sinful people, Lord, and, uh, and uh, we know as well um, that you came to defeat death and have done so, and we give thanks for that, Lord. Um, with respect to our children's ministry, Lord, we uh, ask that you'll continue to give wisdom uh, to our search team. We know that you have a new children's pastor in mind, and, uh, and we call on you to, to make sure that this candidate um, hears from you and comes to us. We thank you for the extra work that Brenda has been doing, um, and we thank you for um, uh, Lauren's willingness to come on um, in, a, in a, a role to help out with that in a more formal way. Um, we, we would like, Lord, to commission her um, in your name, um, that in the work that she does with us, she could be serving you. Um, and finally, Lord, as we open up your word together, we pray that you will open up our hearts and minds. Um, Lord, you know that I like to talk, but my sincere desire is, Lord, that people hear today not so much from me, but from you. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Dave Verward told us a little bit earlier on, it's Community Care Sunday. We have these uh, once or twice a year where we kind of focus on the ministry work that we do as a church in the uh, area of community care. Now, that can be a bit of a vague concept. What does community care mean? A couple of years back, we developed a little definition of that um, that many of you will have seen a few times. When we talk about community care, what we mean is all of the ministries and programs and activities that we as a church carry on to help provide compassionate, generous, and loving care and assistance to a variety of people, people who are in need because of poverty, because of homelessness, because of sickness, or any other circumstance which causes them to be people who, who can use somebody coming alongside them um, and helping to care for them. So that's what community care looks like. Um, the, we have a community care committee uh, that oversees those ministries. You've heard from four of the members of the committee this morning, uh, Dave uh, Verward, uh, Marilyn Young, um, Wayne Gordon, and, and Amber Bueller sit on the committee, and also on the committee um, are Keith Snyder and uh, Bert Dirksen. We, um, one of the primary responsibilities of that committee is to oversee our community care fund. Most of you will know that we have a separate a designated fund uh, that you generously give to uh, on a regular basis so that we can have the funds to carry out community uh, care work. Um, and the community care committee make the decisions about kind of where that money goes and how it gets spent. In terms of the activities themselves, um, we do run some of our own ministries out of the church. Um, uh, the ARM Addiction Recovery Ministry Program has been running for coming up on 15 years, I think, or something like that, uh, which is the Seven Oaks program. We also partner on a couple of ministries that we do here. We partner with the Archway Abbotsford Food Bank uh, to do not just one, but now two satellite food bank operations here every uh, month. And we partner with uh, a Christian uh, refugee settlement organization called Inasmuch here in Abbotsford. Uh, and we and Inasmuch together jointly operate uh, an ESL instruction program um, that has, um, will have when classes resume next week, you know, something on the order of 90 or so students um, who are involved. We also, out of those funds that you give us, provide direct assistance to individual people who come to us and ask for help. So we, we can provide grocery cards or gas cards. In rare situations, we can provide some assistance with rent. And in some situations, people come to us who uh, need counseling um, and can get the counseling that they need over at CARES Counseling, but they don't have the financial wherewithal to pay for it, so we um, use some of those funds to provide assistance uh, to those individuals as well. 
We um, also take some of those funds and provide direct support to a handful of organizations, parachurch organizations that we think, um, that we partner with really closely and we think are really valuable. Um, we give a large out of that fund amount of money to the folks at Joshua House each month. We give, we give some, some, but that was somebody from Joshua House, I'm sure of it. The, um, we give, um, we give uh, money to the Cyrus Center and we also support the work that the Salvation Army does, particularly uh, working with the homeless by sending some money in their direction. Um, we also um, do a number of other kind of miscellaneous things. So there's a lot of stuff kind of going on. Don't want to spend any more time talking about that right now, but if you've got any questions about our community care programs, please ask me or talk to one of the members of the committee. They, they, they still haven't figured out that the reason I make them stand up and read scripture is so that people will go and ask them questions afterwards instead of me. So they're totally fair game in that respect. Um, uh, if you are interested in volunteering with any of the ministries that we operate, we're very excited about that. Give me a call and I'll hook you up. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't say, and we're very enthusiastic about you giving money to the community care fund. So um, if you're interested in doing that, uh, just make a notation on your offering envelope that you'd like a portion of the money that you're giving to go in that direction. Okay. I mentioned that we do these community care Sundays, one or, one or two times a year. And you may know, those of you who have been here for a while will know, that <clears throat> each time we've done one of these, we've picked a, a kind of a particular focus theme. So one year we focused on ministries that provide food to people. One time we focused on ministries, then both our own work and outside organizations that provide shelter to people. Uh, last spring we did <clears throat> a community care Sunday, and we focused on ministries that walk us alongside youth and young adults who are in need. As Dave mentioned in the intro, as he was delivering the call to worship this morning, um, the focus that we want to work with a little bit this morning is um, ministry and work that walks alongside refugees, uh, displaced people, um, newcomers to Canada, ordinary immigrants to Canada, international students, but people who have come under a variety of circumstances from other countries um, to be with us here. And we want to, uh, <clears throat> we want to focus on that just a little bit. This is a growing, in, a growing uh, endeavor. Um, heartbreakingly, I don't need to tell you that the world is getting worse. Uh, there are wars and rumors of wars um, in the news literally every week. There are literally, this is just a mathematical fact, literally millions and millions of uh, refugees and displaced people kind of all over the world um, uh, people who are just desperately looking to find a way to get to a place where they and their families can be can be safe. <clears throat> um, Canada is a as a country is particularly um, positive, welcoming, particularly newcomers, particularly refugees, and Abbotsford has become in the last few years um, actually one of the centers where a great number of newcomers to Canada, particularly refugees, end up being sent. <clears throat> The Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is the denomination that our church belongs to, has um, uh, a really active portfolio of work in this area. There are a large number of alliance churches that do a lot of work in refugee settlement or in refugee sponsorship. There are churches in the alliance who have a dedicated full-time refugee sponsorship pastor who, who does nothing other than uh, manage um, refugee sponsorship uh, initiatives. So this is, this is a a big thing. And for those of you who have been here for a long time, this has historically been an area that Seven Oaks has leaned into. Seven Oaks has done work in refugee sponsorship in the past, has um, run ministries for particular cultural groups in the community um, uh, that, that needed a home. So this is, um, this is not new to us. Right now, in the beginning of 2024, there are three sort of primary ways that we as a church are working in that area. Um, one, as I mentioned, is the ESL program that we do within as much. Uh, another is one of the two food bank satellites that we do. For about two and a half years now, we've been operating um, a regular sort of open neighborhood food bank satellite in partnership with Archway. But a couple of months back, uh, we launched a second food bank satellite, which is specifically for members of the Ukrainian community. So now once a month, we have, we have newcomers to Canada from the Ukraine who uh, use the services of the food bank, who come 
and, uh, and get their food um, from a special food bank operation that, that we do. And the third area that you'll be familiar with is direct refugee sponsorship. A few years back, uh, we were blessed completely to have the opportunity to um, sponsor uh, Anahita and Yaya and Artan to come um, and join us here. Um, I, I hardly actually think about them now in terms of our refugee sponsorship because they're just now flat out people who are here. But, uh, but uh, that was, a, I think, a very joyful project for us. Since then, we've partnership with 10th Alliance Church in Vancouver, one of our sister churches, and we've done a couple of joint um, uh, sponsorships of Afghan families, um, one of which was a successful uh, sponsorship, and some members of that family were able to come uh, to Vancouver um, permanently last year. And even now, we're involved in a sponsorship with a, a, a family, a couple with two very young children who are in hiding in the city of Islamabad in Pakistan. We've submitted a refugee sponsorship application for them, um, which is in the works. Um, but for now, we're kind of on tenterhooks, waiting to see how that unfolds. Okay, that's enough of the community care infomercial part of the program. Um, I, I promise I'm going to, to talk about scripture and preach. And my segue into doing that is to acknowledge that there is a question that one might reasonably ask, which is, they might say, okay, it's great that you guys run an ESL program or you sponsor refugees or you run a food bank for Ukrainians, but why? What, why would a church do that? These don't seem like intrinsically, inherently churchy type activities. Why? Why is it that we do that? Because there are lots of organizations who do work in this area. Different levels of government, particularly the federal government, do a great deal. There are big, well-equipped civic society organizations like Archway Community Services who do an enormous amount of work in refugee settlement. Um, there are parachurch organizations that specialize in this. Inasmuch, the organization I told you about is an organization that was created for the express purpose of providing assistance and residential accommodation to refugee claimants who arrive in Canada. Uh, and there are, for that matter, lots of other churches are doing it. So why, why is this an important thing for us to do, right? Why are we doing it? It's a good question. And should we be doing it? Because we can't do everything as a church. There's a limited amount of funds, there's a limited amount of volunteer time, there's a limited amount of staff time, there's a limited, well, not so much a limited amount of space since we have such a giant building, but still, you get my, you get my drift in that respect. Um, and you could ask that question about any of the community care work that we do. Why do we run a food bank? Why do we run an addiction recovery program? You know, why do we give rent assistance to people who need you know, rent assistance? But the question might be particularly acute in this area of, of working alongside uh, immigrants, refugees, newcomers, because for a couple of reasons. One is, this is a not, a not, not challenging political issue in North America um, in this time. Uh, Im immigration policy is a political issue, and all of us have got our own political views, and, and there can be some conflicts and challenges um, in terms of reconciling what we do as a church with what our, what our political convictions are around these kinds of things. Um, so this question remains, should we be doing this? And once again, I do this a lot when I'm preaching. I posed a question, I'm about to give you the answer, but I'm guessing that you guys can guess what answer I'm going to give, which is, yes, of course we should be doing this. Of course there's a reason for doing it. And the reason is, you all remember this from Sunday school, for the Bible tells me so. We do this because Scripture calls on us. Christ calls on us to do this. In fact, this idea of loving the alien, of welcoming the stranger, of caring for the foreigner, of looking out for the foreigner, this is a surprisingly predominant theme throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New. In terms of the Old Testament, um, Three of my friends came up this morning and read three passages that we had selected to read. Um, that's only three out of, I can tell you, as somebody who spends some time in, in, in vocational Bible study, of dozens and dozens of references 
in the Old Testament to God's call on the people of Israel to care for and love and, and look over the interests of foreigners, of aliens, of, of strangers. Um, and these three we, I, I picked for this morning because they're pretty, they're pretty solid authorities. In the passage from Deuteronomy that Wayne was reading to us, the person who's telling the people of Israel this, who's telling us this, is Moses, who's, you know, a pretty, a pretty high authority kind of on these things. And Moses very specifically is saying to the people of Israel, you are called by God to love, not just provide some snacks to, but to love the alien. And when he says alien in that context, they're about to go in and occupy the land of Israel. They're about to establish themselves as a physical nation state. When he says alien, he means somebody who's not a Jew, but who's now living in your land, and they're different from you. They're not part of this God's people thing that I've created, but they are with you. He says you should love those people. The passage um, from the Psalms that we read, we don't know for sure whether it was written by David, but um, but generally we accept that that the Psalms were written by or under the under the sort of authority of of King David. And David's a pretty good biblical authority. And David in the in the Psalm that um, Marilyn uh, so jubilantly and passionately read out for us this morning, David says, "Look." This is a God who cares about foreigners. That's the God that we worship. Um, and then in, um, in the passage that Dave, actually, during the call to worship, um, read out to us from 1 Kings, from that a prayer of dedication of the temple, I remember the first time I ever read that prayer, how struck I was. Because essentially what, what they built this temple and it's to be the dwelling place of God and that's where the prayers are going to, the, of the community are going to be focused. And uh, King Solomon does this prayer to God to, and, and the general thrust of the prayer is, look God, we don't really deserve you and we can't contain you in a temple and we can't set the agenda for you because you're God. But our ask is, is that when we pray, when people at the temple or in the name of the temple turn to you, and pray, we ask, Lord, that you will hear their prayers. Forgive us for who we are and, and help us. Well, you would expect that from King Solomon, from the king of Israel, but it's striking that he comes to this part of it where he says, oh, and foreigners, people who aren't part of, the, part of Israel, people who don't live here, people who don't speak our language, people who are in different ethnic or cultural groups than us, could you, in the name of this temple, in the name of, of who we are, could, could you please answer their prayers too? Because word will get out about what a magnificent and generous God you are, and people will turn their eyes towards us in that respect. And Lord, our, we ask that you answer their prayers too, because we, we want to include them in what we're doing. This theme runs all throughout. Now listen, you're all... Bible scholars as well. You've read the Bible, you've you know, attended teaching on it. There's lots of stuff in the Old Testament where the approach that Israel has to take to other nations is we're at war with them and we're going to kill them, right? I mean, there's no getting around that. There's war in the Old Testament. Shortly after Moses delivers his speeches in Deuteronomy, Joshua has to go into, you know, across the Jordan and essentially launch military campaign against a number of enemy nations. So yes, there's war with enemies who, are, who, who aren't Israel at, in that particular context. And the Old Testament is full of warnings that when the people of Israel have contact with people from other cultures, they have to be really careful to make sure that their culture, their beliefs, their cultural identity doesn't get eaten up by the cultural identity of the people that they come into contact with. So there's lots of those warnings in, in the Old Testament. I mean, quite frankly, when Solomon becomes king, God says to him, do not be taking a bunch of foreign wives because pretty soon you'll start mixing your worship of me with whatever religion they bring from wherever they come from. And Solomon, ironically the wisest man who ever lives, nonetheless marries several hundred foreign women um, and starts bringing 
bringing in so so religion. So I'm not I'm not saying that it that there's this this pure easy to to read a pattern in the, in the scripture in terms of there are ambiguities and conflicts and challenges, but nonetheless throughout scripture in the Old Testament there is always this theme of you're to love the foreigner, you are to welcome strangers. If somebody from another land is in your land or in your household, you're to care for them the same as you care for your family. That too is a theme. But here's the problem. Israel, like us, turned out to be really bad at doing what God told them to do. Israel, by and large, turned out to be really bad at welcoming the stranger, at loving the alien, at looking over kind of the, the, the good, best interests of the foreigner. So much so that you come forward from the last writings in the Old Testament, 400 years to the first century, to the, the Israel that Jesus was born into. And by that time, Israel as a nation and as a religious establishment have developed this approach to other people, which is just, we have nothing to do with other people. We have nothing to do with people from other countries. We have nothing to do with people from other cultures. They've created this whole religious legal system which says, if you're not a Jew, you're unclean. And if a Jew comes to your house or eats off of the same dishes as you or talks to you, the Jew then becomes unclean too. So, you know, foreigners, strangers, other people, they're bad news. We have to keep away from them. It's stunning to read the Old Testament passages about loving and caring for and accepting and welcoming the foreigner, and then to zoom through to the first century and, you know, and the Pharisees, you know, like attacking Jesus and his disciples because, you know, they have contact with Gentiles. But there it is. There's that failure. There's every reason to think that the sinceres were completely, the, the Pharisees, the Jews in the first century were completely sincere in their belief that they were doing what God wanted them to do, but man, they were badly off track. Then Jesus comes along, right? Jesus comes into the world at the incarnation, and he does a lot of things when he's here, but one of the things he does is comes to remind God's people, to remind the Jews, remind everyone that, that in, in God's Old Testament, that they were to love their enemies, not hate them. And he famously says, you've been told that you're supposed to hate your enemies, love your friends and hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies. It's Jesus who says, who says the number one thing that you, you need to do is love God. And the second most important thing you do is to love your neighbor as yourself. And oh, by the way, in case that seems ambiguous to you, Jesus says, your neighbor is, is typically somebody who isn't like you. It's the person you wouldn't ordinarily want to have anything to do with. That's the neighbor that I, your God, am calling you to love. That's the message that Jesus brings, Right? Jesus, in his life, engages with non-Jews, much to the criticism of the religious establishment around them. Jesus goes to Samaria and has a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jews weren't supposed to have anything to do with those foreigner Samaritans. They were the worst kind of foreigners. They were like us, but slightly different. Jesus does these things, but most of all, Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. In a world that was full of nations, full of ethnic groups, full of cultural groups, full of tribal loyalties, Jesus comes and says, there's a new kingdom, and it's for everyone who wants it. It's a new kingdom. It's a new nation to belong to. It's a new cultural and ethnic identity, and the identity is me. That's what Jesus comes and says, and he says, my kingdom, unlike all of the other kingdoms before, my kingdom is based on inclusion, not on exclusion. It's defined by who's invited to come in, not by who can't come in because we have to be careful about keeping them out. Now, again, you and I have read the scriptures lots, and we're, we're amazed 
because to us, looking back and reading the Gospels, the, the apostles, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, the apostles, seem so dumb because, you know, they don't get this stuff, right? And it's clear that, that although Jesus has said these things and demonstrated these things, it takes them a long time to adjust their thinking. I, I particularly referenced the episode in the book of Acts where Peter, who is really pretty close to Jesus and really kind of got the idea of who Jesus is and really kind of paid pretty close attention to what Jesus taught, Peter nonetheless gets this vision saying, go and visit the home of this Roman centurion, Cornelius. And Peter's initial reaction is, I can't do that. Jewish law says that guy's unclean because he's not a Jew. I can't go there. I can't go into his house. And God sends him this brilliant symbolic vision where he says, I created all of creation. I've created all the animals. I've created you. I've created Cornelius. I created everything. Nothing in my creation is intrinsically unclean. And I'm God. If I tell you to go over to Cornelius's house, Peter, go over to Cornelius's house. And so Peter does. And it's this, it's this extraordinary event uh, in the book of Acts. Now, when, when the apostle Paul comes along, he's kind of quicker to get it, right? Almost from the beginning of his ministry, almost from the time of his conversion, Paul gets this idea that his job, the job that God's given, is to go out to the Gentiles, is to go to the nations, is to go to the Greek world, is to go out across the Mediterranean, is to reach people who aren't Jews. So much so that initially there's some political tension between the historic apostles like James in Jerusalem, who still got a kind of a, eh, this is mostly for Jews, isn't it, vibe, and, and Paul who says, no, this is for everybody. You know, Christ made it really clear, this is for everybody. Now, there is, you may occasionally hear a preacher or or read a a Christian writer who says, yeah, there was this Old Testament thing, the way things were set up in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes along and kicks that all over and brings in a whole bunch of new, much better rules. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And so it's a heresy to suggest that this was a new idea that Jesus brought along. Jesus was, in this respect, reminding um, people who listened to him that this had been an old concept. It was a theology that was always there, right? Now, by the time his followers, anywhere from 40 to 60 years after his death, are sitting down and writing the Gospels, when Paul's writing his letters, when, when the Acts of the, Luke is writing the Acts of the Apostles, as these documents are being written, it's clear that, that the message has finally gotten through. Because it's, there's this beautiful, gorgeous literary thing that the writers of those books include, particularly the gospel writers, where they weave into their story of Jesus' life really, really important details about how much Jesus was teaching us um, that we need to have as much love for foreigners as, as we have, you know, for the people who are like us, right? The Gospels are full of these descriptions, and you especially see this in Matthew's Gospel. The scholars tell us, um, based on everything I read, that, that they think Matthew specifically was writing his Gospel so that Jews could read it, so that, so that they could come to understand that Christ, excuse me, was the Messiah. And so Matthew really hits on on this theme in several key places. One of them we were reminded of back in November during our pre-Advent series on the five women in Jesus' genealogy. You remember Jamie preaching that series on, on when, that when Matthew in, in his gospel sets out this genealogy leading down to, to Jesus' birth, he very deliberately inserts There weren't usually women in genealogies, but he very deliberately inserts these women into it. And almost all the women aren't Jews. This isn't an accidental thing that that Matthew has done. Matthew's very deliberately saying, look, Christ comes from a God understanding, a God world in which there isn't this distinction between Jews um, and others. Others are to be part of God's kingdom, right? You see, Israel had, by the first century, adopted an, what I'll call an us-them mindset. It's an us-and-them mindset. There's us, 
and there's them. But if you read the Old Testament really clearly, you will see that what God has operated with from the start and continues to operate with is an us, us. Them is us. Us is them. There's just us. That's a very clear theme if you, if you know where to look for it, right? And you can see this, by the way, in that um, passage that in Deuteronomy that uh, Wayne read for us of Moses speaking, right? God, Moses says, God says through Moses, I want you to love people who are aliens in your land. I want you to love people who aren't like you. And you know why? Because you once were like them. You once were foreigners and aliens and outsiders and vilified people when you were in Egypt. It's a brilliant way in which, in which the scriptures and God's plan for us are constructed to, to teach us that the problem with us, them, is that there's only us. We are, in a sense, all foreigners. We are, in a sense, all exiles. Now, the last passage that I want to touch on today, which is kind of the key one, um, in a way, is the one that Amber read. Um, it's actually a passage which is fairly traditionally read in churches at this time of year, early January, right? Because we've had all the scripture readings about Christmas, and then afterwards, you may get an account of the visit of the Magi, or you may get an account of Jesus being taken to the temple uh, to be dedicated. Um, but this too is kind of the last, if you will, one of the last story of the, of the Christmas, the birth narrative set of stories. And so it typically often this time of year gets read. It is as Amber cued it up, right? The circumstances immediately after the visit of the Magi. And in the story, Jesus and his parents are forced to flee to Egypt. The reason this is such an important story for us is because Jesus was a refugee. And understand, I don't just mean that metaphorically. This is literally the textbook definition of what a refugee is. There's a family who are being persecuted, directly persecuted by the national government because the national government finds who they are and what they're about to be a threatening thing and they want to eradicate them. And the parents say, not only are we going to die, but our child is going to die if we stay in this oppressive country where the government is opposed to us. We don't want to go to Egypt, but we have no choice if, we're going to, if our child is going to survive. So they flee to Egypt. They are 100% the classic textbook definition of refugees. And it's so, if you think about it, it's, it's so appropriate that Jesus becomes a refugee. And he becomes a refugee in Egypt. Gee, there's a coincidence there, right? Because, because Moses said you should love foreigners because you yourselves were once foreigners in Egypt. And now, now Jesus gets to go to Egypt too. Coincidence, eh? No, it's not a coincidence. This is a master revelation being unfolded by God throughout the books of Scripture from one end to the other. There's a reason he goes to Egypt. It's, it's parallel to, to the people of Israel going to Egypt. Right? And it's important, too, that he becomes a refugee because one of the things that the incarnation is about is about Jesus coming to be with us to experience what we experience as humans. And he experiences what it is to be uh, a refugee, an exile, an outcast, a stranger in a strange land. Because in a way, that is the human experience. For all of us at one time or another, in one way or another, that's the experience that we have. Jesus came to be one of us to share the human experience. So in light of all that, in light of everything that Scripture says, in light of the fact that Jesus himself came and taught these things and demonstrated these things, in light of the fact that Jesus himself, in essence, took on being a refugee um, in Egypt, in light of all those things, the answer to the question is, gee, of course God has a heart for refugees, for the displaced, for the alien, for the foreigner, for the outcast, for the person who, who doesn't fit in where they are. Of course, we as his church should be following that command to love the alien. Um, 
Of course we're called to, and of course we have to answer that call. So that's the answer to why do we do this and, and should we be doing it? And the answer is we can't not if we're going to be Bible people. Now, flash forward 2,000 years and we have a church that has literally billions of people in it. There are currently billions of Christians all over the world. There are Christians in every single country in the world. There are Christians of every single nationality in the world with possibly the exception of some very small, remote, as yet undiscovered sort of tribes, right? But, sadly, 2,000 years later, we're all, inside the church, outside the church, this denomination, that denomination, we're all still very prone to an us-them mentality. We're really good at this, okay, but there's us and then there's them. Even inside the church we do this, well, there's us and there's them, right? We're Protestants, but (laughs) they're Catholics, you know? We're Alliance, but they're Presbyterians. We do this. We're just so darn good at it that we continue to do it. But God, in his infinite patience, has given us these tools to help us get over that, to get past that, to experience the usness of the church, to experience unity. He's given us some wonderful tools for doing that. And chief among those, and most powerful among them, is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's this simple ritual that we're all going to be doing in a moment or two. And this is a good point at which to say, if you haven't picked up your communion elements when you came in the door, you should pop out and and grab some now. We're going to celebrate a communion together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment or two. And what's one of the really critically important things about that is, is that today, literally millions of other believers, other people who have their identity in Christ are going to do the same thing. They are going to celebrate the same event together. And that's such a powerful teaching piece about the fact that there's no us's and them's. There's just us in Christ. Okay. Um, if you've had a chance to, uh, to track down some community elements... Um, Why don't you uh, join me as I give a prayer of thanks for these realities in our lives. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, your written word, for the, the pages of Holy Scripture, for your inspiration of them, for your revelation of yourself to us through those pages. We thank you that these scriptures, this book of yours, teaches us to love the alien, that teaches us to love our neighbors, even if they seem like aliens to us, the same way that we love our friends, the same way that we love ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of loving refugees and immigrants and newcomers in your name, and we ask you to strengthen us in this work. Lord, we thank you for your life and for your death. In your life, we thank you for the teaching us how to be better citizens of the world that we live in. And we thank you for your death because in your death, you made it possible for us to become citizens of the world that is to come. Lord, we thank you for giving us this ritual of remembrance. We thank you for the way that communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, connects us to you and connects us to each other. We thank you, Lord, that your table is a table that is open to all. Lord, help us to be willing to scooch over and make space for the stranger at this table. Help us to be willing to offer welcome to the table in your name. Amen. So, uh, the technical part, uh, for those of you who might be visitors There may be somebody who never operated on one of these brilliant devices. Anyway, there's two things in here. There is a wafer which represents the bread, and there is some juice which represents the body. And there are two seals. There is a clear plastic seal on the top. If you gently peel that back, you can then access the, as Jamie often says, delicious wafer inside. And then to access the juice, you pull back the foil cover on the top.
So on the last night of his life, Jesus was having supper with his disciples. He knew that it was going to be his last time with them. And during the, the rituals of the Seder meal, the Passover meal, uh, there came a point at which he held up um, some bread. It would have been uh, unleavened uh, bread for the Passover supper. It would not have been a styrofoam wafer, I assure you. But, um, but this is about symbolism. Um, he held that up, and what he said to them, which must have stunned them, is he said, this bread in my hand is actually my body, which is now and will always be given over sacrificially for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. Let's remember and do that thing. And then later in the meal, when the cup of atonement was being um, was about to be consumed, Jesus, who was leading the evening's proceedings, held up the wine that they were drinking, and he said, and in the same way, this wine is my blood, which is about to be and will always be shed for you so that you can have life in me. Drink this in remembrance and awareness of that reality. And as my, um, the church that Sumitra and I went to in, in um, uh, Toronto, the pastor there, whenever he did communion, was very fond of saying, if you read the scriptural account of the Last Supper, it says that after they had the bread and the wine, they sung a hymn. So the appropriate way to conclude communion is with some singing. So I'm going to call the worship team up to uh, carry on that tradition. <laughs> 